Captain, just back off THX 1138. Back off for a second. What's wrong? I need something stronger. Take four red capsules. In ten minutes, take two more. Help is on the way. What's wrong? I want you to take a visual record of this. We found it in the patching cells. We killed it. Thank you for being conscientious. A visual record is being taken and filed with the Department of Biological Flow. You have... They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. You know it's multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing Well, good day. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today we are looking at the 1971 American social science fiction film, THX 1138. The film was recommended by listener Jeff Straba, and I thank you, Jeff. Now, while I had seen this film a long time ago, I couldn't remember a thing about it, so as far as I'm concerned, it counts as a film that I hadn't seen before. And besides, the way it came about is an interesting story. And you know, it all started way back in 1944. On May 14, 1944, in Modesto, California, a child was born to Dorothy and George Lucas. He was named George Walton Lucas Jr., He would later describe Modesto like this. Modesto is California, but it's really the Midwest. Yes, I grew up in Midwestern California. You know, Modesto was really Norman Rockwell, Boys Life magazine, raking the leaves on Saturday afternoon and having bonfires. It was very classic Americana. The boy had two older sisters and one younger. The two older sisters would look after and take care of young George. Growing up in the sunshine of the West Coast of the United States, he took an interest in comics and science fiction. He also loved stories that had the good guy versus the bad guy. He took a special interest in westerns as well as the science fiction serials that were being shown on TV, such as Flash Gordon. Who are you? This is Miss uh, Dale Arden. And I'm Flash Gordon. Gordon? Gordon? Professor Gordon's son? Yeah, that's right. During his teenage years, besides being passionate about rock and roll, he also dreamed of being a race car driver. He bought a little Fiat and began cruising Modesto. He said, So, in the summer, cruising was the main entertainment. So I would just go around in circles chasing girls at night, come in at four in the morning and get a couple hours sleep, and then off to school. It was basically the life that he showed in his later film, American Graffiti. Just before graduation, he was driving when he was hit by another vehicle. This caused his Fiat to flip over several times and crash into a tree. It was the seatbelt snapping that might have saved his life as he was thrown from the car. Although he was pronounced dead at the scene, it was soon discovered that, well, he wasn't dead. His two-week stay in the hospital and four-month recovery convinced the young man that maybe he should pursue something different. I made the determination in the hospital, he said, that I was going on to college because I had been given a second chance. And it's amazing what happened in my second life. 
And it's just odd because in my first life, I was sort of going nowhere. And in my second life, from that moment in the hospital, I took off and was accelerating ever since. He declared to his friends and family that he would be a millionaire by the time he was 30. George began attending Modesto Junior College. He was studying things like anthropology, sociology, and literature. With a friend of his named John Plummer, they began to take an interest in the Canon Cinema, which was an American nonprofit organization for distributing independent avant-garde and artist-made films. They also took an interest in classic European films of the time, films by Jean-Luc Godard, Francis Truffaut, and Federico Fellini. Plummer convinced Lucas to attend the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. USC was one of the earliest universities to have a school devoted to motion picture film. His classmates at the school were people like Walter Murch, Hal Barwood, and John Milius. Now, Hollywood at the time didn't get their filmmakers from film school. Hollywood directors were old men that had worked their way up through the system. And it was sort of a joke that kids would go to college to learn filmmaking. And those that graduated would be lucky to get a job making industrial or educational films. Most thought the geeks that studied film were just looking for an easy way to get through college. Walter Murch later said, The first thing that our film teacher told us when we all assembled for orientation was to get out of the business. There's no future in it. There's no jobs for any of you. Don't do this. If you quit now, you can still save some of your tuition. But George and many others weren't discouraged. For George, he realized that filmmaking was what he was meant to do. That's all that was important to him. And within a year, his short films were making a splash. He was winning awards and was considered the most talented student in the school. He went from being a shy, lonely kid to a leader. But also, his new self-confidence affected his ego. In George's mind, his way was the only way to do things, the right way to do them, and wasn't afraid to say so. George would end up going back to USC after graduation as a graduate student. Two fellow students, Matthew Robbins and Walter Murch, had an idea for a short, futuristic film. When George learned that they weren't going to do that film, he took it and made it his student film. George said, I like the idea of a futuristic, sort of brave new world, and I wanted to do something extremely visual that had no dialogue, no characters, that sort of thing, and a cross between a theatrical and a non-theatrical experience. In 1967, he made the short film Electronic Labyrinth, THX 1138-4EB. YYO 7117, I regret to inform you that your mate, THX 1138, destroyed himself at 4.52.39. All possible efforts were made by the authority to prevent this tragedy. I am truly sorry. It was a dark, bleak story of a man trying to escape an oppressive society, an underground city in a dystopian future. It was a 15-minute student film. But the film was far beyond what other students were doing at the time. In January 1968, after the film won first prize in the category of dramatic films at the 3rd National Student Film Festival held at Lincoln Center, New York, Another young wannabe filmmaker who watched and loved the film went backstage to introduce himself. His name was Steven Spielberg, and the two became lifelong friends. 
you might know Spielberg's name for directing the film 1941. Hollywood took notice and began to seek out the young man, and eventually he received a six-month apprenticeship at Warner Brothers Studio. Working at Warner Brothers, directing a film called Finian's Rainbow, was a hero to all young college film students. Francis Ford Coppola. Francis was born in Detroit, Michigan to Carmen and Italia Coppola. He was the middle child of three with an older brother named August and a younger sister named Talia. As a boy, he had a love of science. He also knew all the fairy tales, such as the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen. That along with the popular adventure radio shows of the time, like Captain Midnight. As a child, he was bedridden for long periods of time with polio, so to pass the time, he made homemade puppets and did little theater productions. He had a wonderful relationship with his older brother, who would often take him to the movies. The first film that affected him was Walt Disney's animated feature Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. His brother had a love for the films of Sir Alexander Corda, movies such as The Thief of Baghdad and Jungle Book. Francis began to watch films like The Archer Films and The Red Shoes. He was a quiet and shy kid. Between constantly moving from school to school, as well as having the name Francis, he developed a lifelong fear of being embarrassed. Without friends, he began working backstage in school theater productions. He began writing his own plays, and that led to a scholarship in playwriting to the Hofstra College in 1955. Hofstra College was a suburban school with a wonderful theater. It was there he began to develop his leadership qualities and took an interest in directing theater. He said, In those years, for the first time, I really came into my own. My life revolved around the theater department. You know, there's always that one kid. That one kid in the theater department. The kid in Rushmore? You remember Rushmore? That was me. He started to write and direct his own plays. And he was all set during his final years of college to pursue writing and possibly direct plays. But then he saw a poster that changed everything. It was for Sergei Eisenstein's film, October, Ten Days That Shook the World. He had never seen anything like that film before. It was a silent film, but with sound. But it was the editing that really impressed the young man. As he left the theater, he realized that his plans had changed. He now wanted to go to film school. He went to UCLA Film School and discovered a totally different experience. While working on theater productions, it had been more of a group, family-type endeavor, something that he really enjoyed. And he soon discovered that college filmmaking was more of a lonely, isolated experience, with each student working on their own project. Interestingly, while at UCLA, he met a future rock and roll singer who was also enrolled in film study. His name was Jim Morrison. Francis would later use one of The Doors' songs in a film about Vietnam. To make money, Francis began making little nudie cutie films, or skin flicks, which showed nudity without implying any sexual act. He was eventually hired by Roger Corman as an assistant, and he slowly worked his way up until Corman let him write and direct his own little film called Dementia 13 in 1963. He was hired as a scriptwriter for Seven Arts and co-wrote the scripts for This Property is Condemned in 1966 and Is Paris Burning also in 1966. That same year, Coppola made the film You're a Big Boy Now. The film received a theatrical release via Warner Brothers, 
and earned critical acclaim. Geraldine Page was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe Award for her performance. From there, Warner Brothers hired Francis to direct a musical fantasy film, Finian's Rainbow, starring Fred Astaire and Petula Clark. But Francis found that working with a big studio was very frustrating, as he was constantly at odds with the studio. The first thing he wanted to do was travel to Kentucky to make the film, but the studio insisted that he film it on the back lot on the leftover sets from Camelot. This film was made on the cheap. It was during the time when old-school Hollywood was dying, and the studios were having a tough time relating to what the younger audiences wanted to see. Finian's Rainbow was one of the last Warner Brothers films made under Jack Warner. But it was while directing this film that he noticed a young skinny kid hanging around the set. George Lucas had arrived with a six-month apprenticeship, but found that the studio was pretty much shut down he immediately went to the animation department only to find that the famous animation studio had been closed for good only days earlier. There was only one film in production at the time and that was Finian's Rainbow. Now while there was always a rivalry between USC film students and UCLA film students, many of those from USC did admire Coppola. He was five or six years older than most of them but he did what was thought to be impossible. He was a film school graduate who made it in Hollywood, and that gave hope to the rest of them. Francis noticed George, and he went over and asked what he was looking at. The arrogant George responded, Not much. After that, George began telling Francis of all the things he was doing wrong. Yet Coppola was happy to have Lucas around because he had no friends on the set. He was the only young guy with a bunch of old studio executives trying to push him around. Suddenly there was this young man who he could talk to. Francis told George he could stay on the set on one condition, that he come up with one great idea per day. And George was able to do just that. After Finian's Rainbow, Coppola knew he didn't want to do that again, make a film for a big Hollywood studio. He had the idea of going out on the road with a mobile film studio and creating a story as they went. George came along with a small group of people. They began in New York and traveled to the West Coast and filmed whatever happened. The two stars of the film were James Caan and Robert Duvall. It was called The Rain People. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave Rain People four out of four stars and said... It's difficult to say whether this film is successful or not. That's the beautiful thing about a lot of these new experimental American directors. They'd rather do interesting things and make provocative observations than try to outflank John Ford on his way to the great American movie. After The Rain People, Francis had this grand idea of setting up his own film company away from Hollywood in San Francisco. He called it American Zoetrope. And American Zoetrope, or so Hollywood thought, was just what they needed. After 1969's Easy Rider's huge success, the old-time Hollywood producers learned that maybe they just didn't get what was going on. Warner Brothers signed a seven-picture deal with American Zoetrope. The first film for the new studio was going to be an expanded version of George Lucas' student film called THX 1138. My mate been acting very strange. I can't explain it. Yeah. 
I haven't been feeling very well myself. Yes, I understand. I don't know, maybe it's me. Yes, fine. I needed some Panora last night. I feel as if something... Excellent. ...odd were happening to me. Something... Uh, yes. I can't understand. Could you be more... specific? The sedatives. I'm taking Etrosine, but it doesn't seem strong enough. I have a hard time concentrating. You are a true believer. Lucas said... THX was a parable about the way we were living in 1970. It wasn't about the future. I think all good science fiction films are a reflection of the times that they were created in, but I think I would need more information to understand just what he meant. I get the consumerism part, and I guess coming out of the 60s, the keeping everybody drugged part. So maybe the idea was this film is showing us what society could lead to, I'm guessing. I don't know. Anyway, it was through Coppola that Lucas was encouraged to turn a short film into a feature. Coppola told Lucas to write the screenplay, but Lucas said he couldn't write a screenplay, and Coppola responded, sure you can. Once George finished it and gave it to Coppola, Francis read it and said, boy, you're right, you can't write a screenplay. Lucas went to Walter Murch, one of the men who created the original concept, to help him write the script. That was in June of 1969, and by September they were shooting. One of the biggest challenges was to find the right actors. Not only would they have to work for scale, but they would have to shave their heads. My mate has been acting very strange. I can't explain it. Robert Duvall was born in 1931 and is still alive as of this podcast at 92. He is considered one of the greatest American actors, and he's made so many great films. To Kill a Mockingbird, Bullet, True Grit, MASH, Joe Kidd, Godfather, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, Network, and the list goes on and on. He had worked with George and Francis on The Rain People, and Lucas said the part was written with him in mind. It would be Duvall's first starring role. And in this film, as dry as perhaps it is, he somehow adds a bit of humanity to the role, even though he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. The only complaint I might have is that I just don't see Duvall as romantic lead, which he sort of is in this film. As far as shaving his head, Duvall didn't mind, since the already balding man didn't have far to go. Yeah, you know, this is really odd. I was just thinking about you. I must apologize for... Uh... All this chaos, they, they moved in this morning and uh, it's been going on all day. Donald Pleasance, what can you say about him? He's a wonderful actor who lived from 1919 to 1995. And he's been in some great films, but he's also made some, let's say, questionable choices. His most famous role, of course, is of psychiatrist Dr. Samuel Loomis in the original Halloween and four of its sequels. But he was also in films such as The Great Escape and the James Bond film You Only Live Twice. On the other side, he was in films like The Mutation, Puma Man, and Warriors of the Lost World. I think Donald makes some of these films because he just likes to keep working. And you know, he's always working. His credits go on and on. He has a strange way of acting where he seems both friendly and scary at the same time. 
Even in this film, when he and Duvall's character talk, you immediately think he's up to no good. She agreed that it would be better for both of you to switch. She seemed to think that you weren't accurately mated with her in the first place. I never have another mate like ONA. And to get the part, Pleasance had two things going for him. One, he was already bald, and two, he was willing to work for cheap. The lead actress was a bit more difficult to find. I mean, they had to find a woman who was not only willing to get paid scale, but also to have her head shaved. I don't think so, many said as they turned it down. If you go back on sedation, you won't feel the same way about me. You'll report me for drug violation. Maggie McOney was doing a play in a small theater when she was spotted by casting supervisor Ron Colby. He thought she had a very haunting quality that would be perfect for the part. She got the role of LUH 3417. Maggie was born in 1941 and is still living. I really don't know a lot about her. She didn't do a lot after this film. And it's hard to know if she's a great actor or not while watching this film because she didn't have a lot to do. Though she really makes an impression in the scene she's in. And I have to give credit to anybody who's not only willing to shave their head, but be naked in front of the camera. Who are you? I'm a hologram. I'm not real. You know, the, the fantasy bureau, of electrically generated realities and all that. The part of the hologram, SRT 5752, was a challenge as well. They looked at many people, but no one was right until Robert Duvall suggested Don Pedro Coley, and he got the part. Don lived from 1938 to 2017 and had done some TV work before, as well as being in 1970s Beneath the Planet of the Apes. After THX, he did a lot more TV work with the occasional film role. For all the extras they needed, they went to Shannonon, a drug rehab clinic. The clinic required their patients to have their heads shaved, so that worked out. And they were all willing to work for $30 a day. Now, the original concept was to film the movie in Japan, but due to the budget, those plans were scrapped, and they began looking for San Francisco locations. George began rewriting the script based on the locations they found. They were lucky because there were some unfinished tunnels that they were able to use. The lovemaking scenes between McOmney and Duvall were filmed on a soundstage that was all white for 360 degrees. Duvall said it was his first nude scene and he was pretty embarrassed, but once he got going, it was all right. In fact, he said that once they got into hugging and kissing, when the director yelled cut, he asked her if she wanted to keep going and she was like, uh, no. George said of Duvall and Pleasance, You know I had Bobby Duvall and he would have the perfect performance on the first rehearsal. And Donald Pleasance didn't even bother to read his lines until about the third take. Other filming locations for the movie were the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, the Marine County Civic Center, the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, the San Francisco International Airport, and they actually gained access to a nuclear power plant for some of the scenes. So what is this film, THX 1138, all about? That's right. What's wrong? I just bought one of these yesterday, and it doesn't fit my consumer, and the store doesn't have any of the other kind. For more enjoyment and greater efficiency, consumption is being standardized. 
We are sorry. This is attention all stations. I have a temporary blockage affecting a web section module. Must demand complete insertion and override. It's getting into a critical phase. Well, briefly, in an underground dystopian future, sexual intercourse and reproduction are prohibited, and the use of mind-altering drugs is mandatory. One woman, LUH3417, stops taking her drugs. Now she's sharing a living space with THX1138, who she's slowly falling in love with, so she starts reducing his drug intake without his knowledge. The two fall in love, but are eventually arrested, and well, it's a whole thing. There's lovemaking, a pregnancy, the evil Donald Pleasance, and then with the help of a hologram, they attempt to escape to the surface. I don't want to give anything more away than that. That accident over in Red Sector L destroyed another 63 personnel, giving them a total of 242 lost to our 195. Keep up the good work and prevent accidents. This shift is concluded. Now I noticed a couple of names in the credits that surprised me. One was the remarkable Sid Haig. Sid, of course, was in many of Jack Hill's exploitation films of the 70s and later achieved fame as Captain Spaulding in the Rob Zombie films. There was Johnny Walsmuller Jr., son of the five-time Olympic Games gold medalist Johnny Walsmuller, who achieved fame playing the title role of Tarzan in the movies of the 30s and 40s. Julie Payne, who would go on to have a long career on TV, including voice work on 85 episodes of Garfield and Friends, and David Ogden Steers, whose voice is heard as the announcer. David, of course, would go on to play in 131 episodes of MASH, as well as a ton of other things. Now, when they finished the film, they handed it over to Warner Brothers, and the studio hated it. They ended up cutting about 10 minutes from the film and gave it a very limited release. And initially, it lost money. They also canceled their contract with American Zoetrope, leaving the company severely in debt. Both Coppola and Lucas have lambasted Warner Brothers for how they handled THX and blamed them for its failure. And maybe they could have handled it better, but the thing is, while the film is interesting, it's not commercial whatsoever. I mean, I can see it from the studio's point of view. They invested a lot of money in a film, and they expected something they could sell, something that would appeal to the youth of America, all things that THX surely wasn't. Although that might be said for 2001 A Space Odyssey also, and that was a huge success, so hey, what do I know? The big question I have about THX 1138 is, what would the world have been like if the film had been successful? You see, with Warner Brothers canceling their deal with American Zoetrope, American Zoetrope, George Lucas, and Francis Ford Coppola found themselves in huge debt with no film projects. Coppola had already turned down The Godfather a couple of times, but finally had to admit that he needed the money. Godfather would go on to be a huge success, and because of The Godfather, we got The Conversation, Godfather 2, and Apocalypse Now. In response, Lucas decided that he would make a film the exact opposite of THX, one based on his teenage years of rock and roll and cars, that would be very commercial, and that was American Graffiti. With the huge success of American Graffiti, George was able to make Star Wars, and we all know how that turned out. Now, for me, I found this film interesting, but it was very much a film of its time. I enjoyed watching it, but you know, I don't know how many times I'll watch it in the future. 
The images and sound design are all fantastic, but it's sort of sterile and the story is a bit simple. But now I wonder what do others think of THX 1138? For that, I'll go to the IMDB user reviews. Boba Fett 11386 gave it the full 10 stars and he wrote, a piece of art. This movie is a piece of cinematic science fiction art. People say the last couple of years that George Lucas is a bad writer and director should be forced to go out and watch this movie. This movie is very artistic and therefore is not really that watchable for everybody. Fans of the science fiction gender will love this movie. Star Wars fans will also notice some subtle things and elements in this movie that Lucas later used, mostly in Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope. Not bad, Boba Fett 11386, but people should never be forced to watch anything. Bill Teller 6 gave it 7 stars, and he had this to say. I've been waiting to see this for years. I had no idea what to expect, and I wasn't disappointed. Somewhere between Logan's Run, 2001, and Fahrenheit 451, THX 1138 is an amazing film. But it's nothing like Star Wars or any other George Lucas project I can think of. By today's standards, the CGI elementary. 50 years ago, it was cutting edge. Bottom line, not everyone will like it, but it's still worth watching. Okay, Bill, you know, I read that just how you wrote it, so... uh. Carson Imbrebs 8 gave it only 4 stars. Boring and pointless. Any comparison to works like A Brave New World or 1984 are misguided. While those present unique and insightful views about humanity, building interesting worlds and fascinating characters, and an explanation for why they've reached the dystopia they're in, this movie is just like, what if everything was weird with long drawn out science fiction scenes that don't serve much of a purpose? The characters cause you to feel nothing, and the plot is weak. Save your time. So, Carcini, I I take it you didn't like it, huh? Filler Skeen 19 gave it only one lonely star. A lot of people are saying that this is a friggin' masterpiece or whatever, but the fact is, it's boring. I'm not the kind of person who can't watch a slow film. For example, Gary is one of my favorites, but this is terrible! The set designs are supposed to be minimalistic, but it is in fact boring white. Boring, boring. Dialogue is pathetic and the themes are portrayed absolutely stoically boring, boring. I just about forced myself to watch it through, but I don't give an F about the last 10 minutes. You know, oddly, I can't argue with any of this. Everybody is right in their own way. I just watched it with the first thought that this is the first try of a man who would go on to write and direct one of the most influential films in American film history. So I looked at it with an almost historical viewpoint. But yes, it's not for everybody. While the beach set twists to the big beat sound of the Del Airs, swinging out with six rocking hits, while the cycle gangs burn up the road and strong-arm their way into the party with fists flying, while teenagers prepare for a secluded slumber party, terror strikes from the bottom of the sea, an invasion of ghoulish atomic beasts who live off human blood.
A little bit before I go. You know, George Lucas was really upset about how they cut out a few minutes of his film. And the same thing happened to American Graffiti. There are many interviews in which he goes on and on about how upset he was, and he seemed to have never got over that. I don't know, George. You know, it's like some filmmakers want to get huge amounts of money to make their film, but are unwilling to work with the studio. Those studio executives' livelihood depends on the success or failure of a film. There's been studio heads fired over one bad movie. And you have to remember, for every one filmmaker who's right about their movie, there's probably a hundred that are wrong and their films need editing. When Coppola made Bram Stoker's Dracula, the studio cut it down a bit. They cut out some of the blood, and when asked about it, if there was ever going to be a director's cut, Coppola said no. He was fine with the movie. He was happy to work with the studio to make the best film possible. But Lucas was so incensed that after Star Wars was a huge success, he used his power to make the studios put back the footage that had been cut. And you know, I saw American Graffiti when it was first in theaters, and I enjoyed it completely, even with the missing three minutes. And I'm sure if I watch it now, with those three minutes added back in, I wouldn't be like, oh my god, it's so much better. I probably wouldn't notice. Now, if you've got any thoughts on THX 1138, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, or anything else I've talked about today, send them to me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. You can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And I have a Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to go back into the world of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and we're going to watch The Horror of Party Beach from 1964. This is one of Nancy's picks, and it's one I'm glad to do. I love this movie. So I hope you'll join us. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. Could you leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast? You know, I'd be forever grateful, right? Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay healthy, and I'll be back next week. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can play the piano.